The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. After many, many years of telephone conversations, WhatsApps, emails, SMSs, and promises to meet when I'm down in Cape Town or when Karen is up in Johannesburg, I finally get to meet Karen Dolly face-to-face, and she today is our guest um, on Confidential Brief. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be face-to-face with you finally. Karen, I'm, I'm enjoying this book. It's an absolute amazing book, The Enforcers, and it takes us into the Cape Town underworld. And in the book, it, it talks about you um, having becoming a journalist in 2006, how you worked in various Cape Town newsrooms, etc. And in 2012, you got really involved in reporting on the, the underworld. How did that happen? Was it by chance? Were you, did you happen to be the crime reporter? But how is it that that became your neck? I'm not quite sure. I think it was by pure chance. Before 2012, I was looking into gang violence, not too much politics in the Western Cape, but gang violence, isolated incidents, lots of crimes, lots of court reporting. And I remember... Sometime either late 2011 or early 2012, I attended an auction at the Mount Nelson Hotel. And those were assets of Yuri the Russian, Ulyanitsky, and Mr. Mark Lifmans that went under the hammer. And a few days after that auction, I got a call from a businessman slash suspected underworld figure at one stage. And he insisted we have an interview. It took a while for the interview to actually happen. And when it did that's when I really started looking into nightclub security. How difficult is it to to be able to distinguish between a businessman and an underworld figure? And when are you able to actually understand that somebody actually is more of an underworld figure than a businessman? It's really difficult because, firstly, there are very few, if not, there haven't been any convictions. So... When I say suspected underworld figure, it's usually someone suspected of crimes related to the so-called underworld. As a journalist, I try and view everyone as they purport to be. So I say a businessman, he has been suspected of underworld crimes. And growing up in the Cape, did you ever, be before you started reporting on this, were you in any way um, conditioned towards violence by having experienced it personally, or do you have any family that 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 were in any way um, part or parcel of of the effects of gangsterism in the Cape? I've been exceptionally lucky. I, when I was a child, I lived in the northern suburbs, but that wasn't a gang stronghold. It is now a certain section nearby to where I stayed, but I've been very lucky to live in areas in Cape Town that have sort of been in between other areas, pockets of gang strongholds. But it's almost like Table Mountain. It's something that's always there. Gang violence has always been there. I've always known about it. And, yeah, it's part and parcel of the Cape Town I know. Now, I I grew up originally in Durban. I came to Joburg in, in 87 and Joburg's always had a reputation as being the place where organized crime has manifested itself. When we got our new plates under the new dispensation, GP for gangster, uh, for, 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 for Gauteng Promise was Gangster's Paradise or Gunpoint. And everybody's always thought of Joburg as this really bad place with really heavy guys. Places like Cape Town are regarded by the world as one of the most idyllic holiday spots 
the mayor, there's previously received the Mayor of the Year Award, and people believe Cape Town to be this absolutely magnificent place. Is it a lie? Is it two worlds in one? What is it? I think it's a perception. Um, it's something that really frustrates me when Cape Town is viewed as this idyllic tourism hub when the reality is completely different or some people's realities are completely different. But if you move from the city center, which is quite, it's seen as a glitzy nightclub hub. But if you move further out and even if you drive from the airport, you'll see, you'll see gang strongholds. You'll go along the N2, yeah, and you'll drive past areas and you may not even know it, which are really historic battle zones. So I'm not sure if I can say it's, Sort of two cities in one. I think different people have very different realities of Cape Town based on geographic location. Do you think it's a case of out of sight, out of mind up until these hits started happening in the actual city bowl and in Seapoint and in those areas that people had an understanding that somewhere along the line there were some bad people, but it didn't affect them directly. So they, they got on with their life and ignored it. I think that's a more accurate way of looking at it. I do know that, for example, a shooting in Seapoint can easily, easily, easily be linked to a shooting in Manenberg, which is one of Cape Town's most horrific gang strongholds. And I think when a shooting happens in a more upmarket area, that's when attention is given to a broader issue, and that's when the broader issue is truly acknowledged. I think there's something fundamentally wrong in South Africa. If a, if a little blonde girl with blue eyes goes missing, we're going to see it on the front page of a newspaper. But if a little black girl from the township goes missing, it's just a, a statistic. Is that a possible analogy to what's been happening in Cape Town? I think in Cape Town, there are such historic gang strongholds that have been killing fields for decades that it's become the norm. And to a sense, yes. If you go into a more upmarket area, Seapoint, for example, or Stellenbosch, etc., when there's a shooting there, it is sort of bigger news or viewed as bigger news because it's more unnatural incident to take place. However, that unnatural incident is completely normal in certain other areas. I remember two incidents that stood out for me. And I don't know if it's before you were reporting on, on crime in the Cape or whether it was during your, your tenure, but there were two incidents where suddenly South Africa took notice. The first were two well-known white boys that were, that were murdered in one of the more upmarket areas. And then there was another incident where people were murdered in a brothel and it, it made headline news around the country. Tell me about those incidents. The first incident you referred to, I was a reporter at the time, and I actually covered that. It was Brett Golden and Richard Bloom, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was a very young reporter, and I didn't actually realize the ramifications of it, but it was a massive story. Not even story. It was an awful, horrific crime, which made lots of headlines yeah, consistently. And if I recall correctly, that actually boiled down to an alleged gang member having carried out the shootings. So it all links back to gangsterism. The second incident, I don't think I was a reporter at the time. So the first one, I think, brought home the reality to the people that were living these very closed-off lives in the more affluent areas about what crime was really like. Because that incident that we spoke about, if I can be brutally honest, is something that would happen um, on the Cape Flats or in a place like Mannenberg virtually on a daily basis. That's spot on. There are shootings nearly every day. There are shootings Every weekend, and it 
doesn't receive as much attention from the media. And I think it's simply because it's viewed as normal. It's not out of place. It's not extraordinary when, in fact, we should view it as completely extraordinary. What I enjoy about your book, and you don't say it outright, but you allude to it, is the fact that um, a lot of what we are seeing today, 25 years into our democracy, is in actual fact a legacy of apartheid in terms of spatial planning and in terms of the way police officials were were allocated to certain areas. Would I be correct in that assumption? Absolutely. What we're seeing now is a continuation of a cycle. This all started under, well, not started, but this was happening under apartheid. What we see in the nightclub security scene, the same thing is happening there. And I think it all boils down to exactly what you say, location, police allocation, and also infighting within police services, within intelligence services. And that's why we're seeing a repeat. You can't just stop something that isn't actually defined you know, spatial planning is something that, that interested me for years, and I use this example for people to try and understand what I mean about the effects of spatial planning. And one of the examples I give is I'm married to an Indian lady, and the Indian community in South Africa under apartheid were also defined to certain areas. And we're the only country in the world outside of India where our Indian people actually have an Indian accent because they grew up with each other, they went to school with each other, and they were kept out of other communities. Within the Cape structures, you, you obviously had your colored community that were confined to areas outside of the more affluent areas, etc. And they had to introduce their own structures in terms of um, securing their communities, policing their communities, and it was even criminals that would take up their baton as community leaders. Are we seeing a continuation of people that um, take up the baton as community leaders but are actually involved within the crime that's being committed? I think what we're seeing is it's cyclical and generational. So what I've noticed as a reporter is that We've got suspected gang members, and now we've got suspected gang members' relatives who have sort of come onto the scene. So it's definitely a cycle, and it's definitely, it is like a baton being passed on. And yeah, I don't think people necessarily view this as crime. Certain people, it could be seen as a simple way of life. This is how it's always been done, because nothing's actually really nipped the gang problem in the bud. What, what what strikes me as strange in, in people turning a blind eye to the crime that's happening in beautiful Cape Town, idyllic Cape Town, the getaway spot for the rich and famous, is that if one looks at the formation of the Asset Forfeiture Unit in terms of Prevention of Organized Crime Act, their very first success in terms of a preservation order was Colin Stanfield. And we're now seeing his nephew who's taken up the reins since Colin died a few years ago. It does appear to be the case. Um, I believe you're referring to Ralph Stanfield. He is a suspect in criminal matters. And just out of interest, his cousin, Salim John, was convicted of several crimes a few years ago. And it's absolutely bizarre because it's all so interconnected. And Salim John was actually wounded on the steps of the Western Cape High Court. In a shooting. Yeah. I'm chatting to Karen Dolly about her extremely interesting book, The Enforcers. If you want to have a chat to us, you can send us an SMS on 34519. You can tweet us at FM, or we've migrated from WhatsApp to Telegram. So you can send us a Telegram on 061-895-1019.
Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. The man who stops advertising to save money is the man who stops the clock to save time. To find out how Hi FM can work for your business, call us on 010 140 4090. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're chatting to Karen Dolly. She is the author of The Enforcers. Uh, the book launch in Johannesburg is tomorrow, Tuesday, at Bamboo Books in Melville. Um, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. A regular on on our program, Mandy Weiner, is going to be in conversation with Karen, and they're going to be discussing the underworld as a whole and the underworld how it's impacted on Cape Town and Johannesburg specifically. Karen, how's it impacted on you? And you don't have to be specific, but as somebody who grew up not in gang areas but in the northern suburbs, now having been exposed to it, has it made you more jaded, more numb? It's made me more wary. And yeah, I would say sometimes I'm more jaded. It all depends on the day and my moods, really. But it's overwhelming to, yeah, basically having written the book and seeing everything pieced together and plotted together. It's really overwhelming, and it's quite dejecting to try and figure out how to solve something so massive, so amorphous, and something that's constantly growing. Has it impacted in the way you you trust people, in the way you communicate with people? Absolutely. One of the things that I've picked up through interviewing several people, from police officers to suspects, etc., they all sort of insinuate, "Don't trust anybody," and it's almost like I'm not sure who I'm talking to at times. I could be sitting opposite a policeman, but at the same time, I could actually be sitting opposite a criminal. Do you think that that sociopath streak is existing in both those who are meant to be enforcing the crime as well as those who are breaking the crime? Without a doubt, I think sometimes the two are the same thing. And you must find these people. I know that I remember reading certain reporters the way they reported on crime in the past, but you must have found these guys try come across as exceptionally charming. Sometimes yes. Um, sometimes, for example, in some interviews, I've been flat out ignored. If I've asked a question, and there's a colleague or a photographer in one case was with me, the answer to my question would be directed at the photographer. Sometimes I'm totally unacknowledged. So it, yeah, fluctuates between ego and complete <laughs> ignoring of me. But Karen, talking about photography, and this I, this I find hair raising. Is you're a journalist, you're a print journalist, you're now an investigative author as well. But in a lot of the pictures that we see in the book, you actually took those pictures, and some of them you took um, in secret, uh, where you knew there was a meeting that was going to take place, etc. Th- that's ballsy. I would say it's more naive. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if, for example, the meeting was going ahead, and I actually wanted to. Firstly, I wanted to see if the meeting did go ahead. The meeting did go ahead, and I. Thought well, this is my job to document this. In another case, there was a lot of misinformation being fed to me. So there were there was a group of armed men outside a nightclub in the city centre, and I was told they're going to be here. And I thought, let me try and call their bluff by going there. And to my horror, 
there was actually a group of armed men in the city centre. And I did document that. I am a journalist and I was well within my right to do so. Public space. One of the pictures you took was outside court and it was one of these businessmen surrounded by bodyguards that are, I don't even know how to describe them. I'm a tall guy, but those guys were mountains. Didn't you feel intimidated? Not actually what... I was there to report, so I actually went up and introduced myself and shook everyone's hand and said I'm a reporter and let them walk on. And I did make mention of the fact that I will be taking photos. Well, I encourage our, our listeners to buy this book, but I'm going to actually upload that picture on our on our group a bit later with permission from the author. Because when you look at the body language of these bouncers, I find it intimidating just looking at a picture. You were really there. I think. It happens so quickly and it's on the job, so I don't really get a chance to acknowledge what's happening. It's usually like a few days later when I'm like, whoa, okay, that happened, and moving swiftly along. So writing the book and actually pausing and looking through it, that was a lot more harrowing than experiencing it. You talk in the one instance where at one of the first bail applications of one of the more um, colorful businessmen of Cape Town was taking place, in the front row sat three generals. This must have been quite a bizarre situation for you. You had the accused along with fellow accused in the dock from the one gang. I'm sure sitting amongst the um, spectators in court were members of the opposing gang. And here you had three of Cape Town or the Western Cape's most senior police officers. Did that, did that finally, um, did a light bulb go off for you at that point in time about the symbiotic relationship between all these parties? The light bulb went on, but it was a dim light bulb at that stage. I did find it really unusual for all three top Western Cape police officers to be present in court for what could have been a mundane or sort of -of run-of-the-mill bail application, but it was quite surreal to sit in the middle of these two groupings, a group of suspects and the top generals, and that actually pushed me to dig a lot deeper why on earth what would these generals be here for? It soon became apparent. Do you feel that our our journalists, although there's been a lot of attacks on Twitter of late and um, with journalists that report on on a supposed particular narrative when it comes to state capture, etc., do you still believe that our journalists are safe in South Africa, unlike countries like Russia or Mozambique? It's a tough question. I would have to ask individual journalists Um, There's a fine line, especially when reporting on the underworld. I've received a death threat for reporting on a national gun smuggling investigation. And, yeah, it's I I can't actually answer that. And the narrative that that we we see coming out of America with regards to fake news, do you find that suspects or people that you you ask for comment, etc., actually turn around and now use this as a term? Um, I actually find that they use the opportunity to peddle false information in certain instances. I've noticed that, for example, there was a story that was published on, I think, two or more news sites that an underworld suspect was murdered. That story appears to have been intentionally planted. That That is fake news. Now, the story you're talking about had all the the makings of a crime intelligence report. It was a situation report that was circulated by WhatsApp, and it was the in the exact 
correct format. The thing that stuck out for me in that particular thing is that the two senior members on the scene were a constable and a sergeant, and that immediately made me question the veracity of of that. What do you think the intention was behind spreading that fake news? Was it to try to discredit other stories? Perhaps it was to instill fear in the figure that was alleged to be murdered or dead. Perhaps it was to send a message to that person. We're going we're gonna to take a break. We're halfway through the show. When we come back, I want to talk about information peddlers and the link between the intelligence community and the underworld figures. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Talking about reading, children should be reading. What's happening to the children on the Cape Flats? What's happening to the children in Manenberg? How has gangsterism and drugs impacted on their lives? In terms of gangsterism, one of the things that really stood out for me when I was in Manenberg quite often a few years ago was when there's shootings, the children don't necessarily run. They run out to see what's happening. They've become so conditioned to the sound of gunshots that it doesn't scare them as it really should. In terms of drugs, over the years I've interviewed lots of young people who acknowledge abusing drugs, but they also say, this is all there is for me. It's this, so I'm going to sit in the street or whatnot. It's really difficult to, yeah, it's difficult to report on because it's almost like the degradation of an entire segment of the population. But you as a person... Knowing you personally through our interactions over the years, reading your book, etc., you obviously have a lot of empathy for these children, for these people that are, that are growing up conditioned to shooting, conditioned to having parents who are drug addicts, and knowing that there's not much of a future for them. Is this – who's to blame for this? Is this because of, of, of massive unemployment? Are we going to have a generation of zombies? Where does the blame lie? I think the blame lies ev- everywhere. I mean, from from the ground up to officers in government, gangsterism is so m- multifaceted. It's v- gangsterism, and then that ties into drug peddling, drug abuse. I mean, you can start selling drugs for money, then you start using it. It becomes two cycles that combine. So, I mean, we, it can be policed. Parents can do more. We need more jobs. Schooling, I mean, I I don't actually even know how to describe how sort of it spreads out so much that in order to tackle it, you need to approach each one of the aspects that sort of shoots out from it. And there are so many. How young are are, are kids recruited into the gangs as spotters? Um, I can't say in general, but I will refer to a specific interaction I had a few years ago. There were, I think they were 11 and 12 years old. And I was chatting to them and it was the most bizarre thing because they invited me into their home so that I can interview them. Um, I had the parents' approval and what they were saying was fascinating. I mean, the next day they phoned me to say, oh, we may be going to do this, we may be going to do that. They are totally conditioned to a completely different reality. I mean, the... There were two, it was two boys, their mother was sitting in the room next door, and she was sort of shouting at intervals like, no, don't say that, don't be rude, don't be naughty, but they're talking about criminal activity. 
it's so difficult for me to conceptualize. How do you, as as a person, bridge those two worlds? And how do you cut out what you've seen that day? You've been in a in a in a in a lower income area with two children that should be playing with toys that are involved in gang activities, and now you going home to a different world. How do you reconcile? I don't think I do. What I do try and do, though, is I try and pour that into what I write. So, for example, the book, I'm hoping that it gives people understanding. And because there's understanding, someone could, I mean, there are a million potential solutions to how to solve gangsterism. But if we have more people looking at it, more people understanding the different parts of it, yeah, hopefully something can be done. So I really try and channel what I see into writing and then sort of use that and go forward with that. Are you optimistic or pessimistic when it comes to the war on on crime in South Africa and in particular on the Cape Flats? At the moment, I feel pessimistic. Um, That's because after, after writing the book, you'll see that a lot of the time there are allegations and claims made from within the police service against police officers to underworld suspects making claims against police officers Sadly, everything is pointing back to within the state, to rogue intelligence operatives, to corrupt police officers. So the layer, for me, the way I view it is the layer that is protecting residents from harm is no longer there. We saw that with the state security services um, that appears to be happening with the police and especially the police in the Western Cape. I'm chatting to Karen Dolly. She's author of The Enforcers Inside Cape Town's Deadly Nightclub Battles. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm chatting to investigative journalist and author Karen Dolly about her book, The Enforcers, Inside Cape Town's Deadly Nightclub Battles. Now, we haven't actually covered the, the whole nightclub battle scenario, so let's talk a little bit about that. How long has it been going on for, and what are they, what are they fighting for? Well, from my perspective and from a Cape Town perspective, it's been happening since the early 90s, at least since the early 90s. At first... At first glance, it looks like different factions fighting to control the doors of nightclubs. So that's what you see at first. On second glance, it looks like rogue intelligence operatives who are fighting each other or proxies who are fighting each other. And on third glance, it looks like proxies who are fighting each other and their handlers or whoever is who the puppet masters appear to be within the state. So it's state on state Warning. Before the, the stories broke in the Sunday Times and City Press, on the same day, strangely enough, the Sunday Times reported on a, on a supposed rogue unit within SARS. The City Press reported on a supposed rogue unit within the state security agency known as Special Operations Unit. Before that, the public weren't really aware of that. This suddenly came out in the press and was followed by a lot of books. We had a book, The Ministry of Crime by Mandy Wiener. We had The Presence Keepers by, by Jacques Poe. And then, of course, one of the people that was involved in the so-called SARS rogue unit himself, Johan von Lochrenberg, wrote the book Rogue. He then wrote Death in Texas, and he's now written his third book, which has come out, Tobacco Wars. And all of these books have a common thread, intelligence. What is intelligence, and why are the intelligence agencies involved in all these activities? What a lot of my sources have alleged is that 
it's an easy allegation to make, I suppose. They say, look, this person has so much dirt on that person, but that person has dirt on this person. So to shut each other up, there's sort of this chess game. <laughs> and they're using proxies to carry out the war. And that's why we're seeing shootings, etc., on the streets. These aren't necessarily easy, um, for example, a shooting, which is absolutely gang violence. These are proxy wars. Is the intelligence community really involved or is it an excuse? Because I always found it strange that the state security agency, our old NIA, have a spokesperson, Brian Dubé. But now if you had to phone him, he would he would give the classic answer, I can neither confirm nor deny because it's the intelligence community. So do you think it's being used as a scapegoat or do you think the intelligence community really is involved? I think a bit of both. I think the intelligence community is involved and others are capitalizing on that for personal corrupt gain. So would the intelligence community's involvement be to try to get control of the Cape for a political party perhaps? Or would it just be monetary, that they're trying to monetize their connections and they feed information to these different groups? A Hawks officer said that Controlling the door of a nightclub means controlling whatever illicit substance flows through it. And what you just mentioned about Mr. van Lochtenberg's book on sort of illicit tobacco, etc., that's where all this starts interweaving. So it's not just a nightclub door. It's not just power for a nightclub door. It's power over that substance. And from there, it links to money and that links to greed. You actually talk in your book about tobacco, strangely enough, because we all know about the drugs, we all know about the nightclubs, etc. But you actually make specific mention of a shipment of illicit tobacco that went missing in one of the areas and somebody being shot as a result of that. Tell us a bit more about that. That murder, I think, happened sometime in 2017. And again, if if this were reported as it's usually reported on, sort of there was a shooting in Woodstock, which is a suburb in Cape Town, it would have just been coined to, oh, yet another shooting. But when I looked a little deeper, it appeared that this consignment of tobacco went missing after a truck was hijacked. The person who was allegedly involved in the hijacking then knew this person who was who went on to be murdered was going to retaliate and to prevent that retaliation he was taken out. It's very interesting. They're preempting it and I think you even state in your book that the person who had ordered the tobacco felt that he may still be held liable for what he was meant to pay for it and he himself went into hiding. He went missing, that's correct. It's it's absolutely bizarre. But the intelligence community to me is is a common thread that we see having manifested itself during the 80s, we see it during the 90s, and we now see people that were on opposing sides, MK operatives and security branch operatives, now working together. What do you make of that? I think it may be a little different in the Western Cape in that they may not be working together. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I think this is classic what we meant to believe, though. There's so much smoke pumped into these mirrored alleyways that this is probably why I say I don't know what to make of it. You don't know who to believe. Are people really working together or are they creating the idea that they're working together? It's quite unbelievable. In your personal opinion, can these gangs operate without police protection or is there definitely a blue line that is involved between the gangs that is sharing information? 
I would think that there is definitely a blue line running through gangs. That was very apparent in Project MP, the National Firearm Smuggling Investigation, where a police officer admitted to smuggling firearms meant to be in police custody to gangsters. That was a major, major sort of line of firearm flow to gangsters in the Western Cape, and that came directly from police. Now, there's a unit that a lot of people are unaware of. It's called the Office of the DPCI Judge, and they meant to be the IPUD of the Hawks. And then, you, of course, you have IPUD, which is there to, to police the Hawks. The Western Cape is the first province to introduce an ombudsman, a police ombudsman, somebody that the public can go to to complain to. And Vusipikoli was the first person to hold that post. Do you believe it's helped at all in the Western Cape? And do you believe that we need this third body, or should more resources be given to IPUD and the Office of the DPCI judge. I haven't really looked into the Western Cape situation, so I can't really say if it's helped or not. But what I can say is that in one of the, there have been a lot of claims of smear campaigns being driven against certain police officers, top police officers involved in exceptionally critical investigations. And it came out previously, or it was alleged previously, that the Office of the Police, not police ombudsman, the office of the ombudsman was actually used for other types of gain, not for good. One has to ask, with incredible legislation like the Prevention of Organized Crime Act, a unit like the Asset Forfeiture Unit that can analyze people's lifestyle, with SARS being able to commit lifestyle analysis, why is it that these people are driving the best cars, living in mansions, yet getting away with crime? Well, that's why we need to look within state services. There are so many claims and allegations of police complicity in the underworld, of intelligence agents sort of shaping the underworld. And one of the strong themes that came out when I was working on the book was that, for example, someone would make an allegation against someone and this person is never arrested. And I'm like, why? Because that person's an informant. So there's so many informants that are protected or apparently protected by the mere fact that they are an informant, that a blind eye is almost turned to crimes that they allegedly commit. That's true. Um, when one looked at Agliotti, it came out that he was an informer, and they used him to turn state's witness against um, Celebi after getting him based on, on drugs and his co-accused based on murders. Turns out that a lot of those murders that received 204 themselves may have been on the informer payroll. Is it a system that needs to be relooked? I do believe it is a system that needs to be relooked, overhauled. And the problem with it, and I've discussed this with a former senior person within government, the problem is that because by nature these people are sort of off the books, it's so difficult to keep an eye on something that isn't official. Well, when one looks at the transcripts of the trials and the charges against Ferdy Barnard, who's now been released on amnesty, Eugene Cock, who's now been released on amnesty, they actually abused the informer's fund. And it's definitely something, in my opinion, that opens the door for corruption because there's, there's so much money that sits in that fund. Absolutely. I know with Mr. Barnard, I mean, he openly admitted to the TRC that he he used his position to further criminal activity, totally unrelated to what he was meant to be doing within the state and for the state. And I think I think that is happening in the Western Cape in the nightclub security scene. Absolutely shocking. We're going to take our last break of the day. When we come back, we're going to talk about where you can find this incredible book and about the book launch tomorrow night. 
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. We've been chatting today to Karen Dolly, the author of The Enforcers, available at all good bookstores. Karen, tell me about the, the first launch. You had a launch in Cape Town a couple of weeks ago. Must have been very interesting. Were you nervous? I was exceptionally nervous. I don't do public speaking, except now I do. Um, but it was a good turnout. It was an interesting conversation, interesting questions. Any questions that stood out? Um, yes, there was one. Who is the biggest threat to the city at the moment, that Cape Town that is? I couldn't answer that. I wouldn't do so on a public platform. And also that would be my opinion and not fact. And, yeah, just a few questions about party funding, if... Yeah, if it will become more apparent who's funding who and if that may lead to underworld suspects, I can't answer that because I think a lot of transactions happen via cash. So, yeah. Well, thank goodness for the right to know and the fact that acts are changing and come the next election, we're a bit late for this one and there's already um, question marks hanging over our last national election, especially with regards to Basasa and others. At least we will know going forward who funds who. And it was strange that it was the only thing that the ANC and the DA agreed on is to protect their funders' identities. Tomorrow night's the launch. You're going to be sitting with your colleague, somebody who's written very similar books, Mandy Wiener. Are you excited? I'm very excited. I've chatted to Mandy very briefly on and off over the years, but we've never actually had a full sit-down conversation. So I'm very tempted to take notes and treat it as an actual interview, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it because the relationship I have with Mandy is the, is the same way my relationship with you started. It would be who would get the information first about who's just been shot. And Mandy and I would chat at five in the morning and if, if she phoned me, I would say, okay, who's been killed? Or, it would be the opposite way around. I would wake her up and she'd say, okay, who's been shot? And you and I, that's how we got to know one another. So it's going to be great having two of South Africa's top investigative journalists and authors in the same room talking about something that, that is so um, close to, to, to your heart and to her heart because you guys have spent so much time. What have you taken away from writing this book? Has it been therapeutic or has it opened your eyes to, to the bigger um, narrative that's taking place It's opened my eyes massively Like if my eyes could open any further It would be painful But yeah, it's the first time in, I've been a hard news reporter And when I was working online It's a fast, extreme pace So it's the first time I've had the luxury Of looking back, reading through things Very slowly, piecing things together Unpiecing them, piecing them together again So this has really Helped me understand a much much bigger and a much, much more terrifying picture. Are you looking forward to tomorrow night's launch? I am. I'm really looking forward to picking Mandy's brain if I'm given the opportunity. I mean, we both see the underworld from two different provinces, so I, I really can't wait to hear what questions she asks as well. There's such a massive intersection between the two that it is going to be fascinating, and who knows, there may be another light bulb moment between the two of you, either before or after. Hopefully we as the audience who are going to participate will see that light bulb moment. But in closing, um, you, you're going to obviously tell us where this is happening tomorrow, but before we get to that, in closing, what, what are the immediate steps you think government can take to try to show that they're serious about fighting the underworld. I'm going to be Western Cape specific because I see that's where a glaring problem is. And I would say that they, someone, something 
anyone needs to look at the policing situation, not the claims and counterclaims just now, but they need to look far back to understand what's happening now. And they need to sort of clean up the police thoroughly. Karen, tell us more about the launch in Melville tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's happening at Love Books, 6 for 6.30 p.m. And that's in the Bamboo Centre in Melville. And uh, Mandy Wiener is going to have you in the hot seat once again. So it must be different for you coming from being the interviewer to being the interviewee. I must say, I'm still getting used to it. I find it really horrific. Public speaking is not my thing. I'll reiterate that. But it's also really good to, yeah, it's a great platform to discuss something that I don't think has been discussed very broadly and in depth yet. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. For those Joburg people who are always telling me they want to move down to Cape Town by the enforcers inside Cape Town's deadly nightclub battles and get the real spin on what's going on in Cape Town. My name's Chad Thomas. I'll be back same time, same place next week.